you go down this cliff, go left down the cliff, yeah. and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. My truth is the truth <laughs> that you will never understand. Private ownership is one single individual giving free light. Doesn't that tell you that your system is more akin to authoritarian dictatorship? It's merely anything. Just when these American citizens needed their rights the most, their government took them away. The rights aren't rights if someone could take them away. Today, half every man in a straitjacket. To leave a country is like breaking out of jail. And to enter a country is like going through the eye of a needle. I don't know if you've noticed, but our two-party system is a bullish looking in the mirror at itself. Welcome, welcome. I'm Daniel Platt. This is a Three Left Show, your place program. It covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective for the curious or the committed, if the opening didn't give you those hints. Promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. No entryism here. Uh, sometimes discussed, maybe. The meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology, and many other types of isms. We proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. We are returning to leftist strategy. I'll be calling this episode the co-op question. Starting with the position that co-ops are great and part of the equalist toolbox, uh, the the left-wing toolbox. However left-wing you think you are, co-ops seem like a good idea. Progressives like them. Leftists like them, or at least like to argue about them, uh, which we will do a little bit of. We'll share some articles that kind of poo-poo them in certain ways, or at least discuss their drawbacks. And we'll, but we're going to start with basically the poster child of co-op strategy, Professor Richard Wolf. So I'm just going to play a little eight-minute clip of him discussing co-op strategy, how to start one. And I especially like Professor Warp because he will be debating. He, he's up there enough as a public figure to debate people like the CEO of Whole Foods, who wrote a book called Conscious Capitalism and debunks that and argues and debates them in public and usually looks really good doing it, especially when, you know, you have these guys, these right-wingers of various sorts, uh, say like, well, you haven't started a business. You haven't run anything. You leftists and Marxists are always... Not the opposite of job creators, slouches, you know, leeches, whatever, and you know, Wolf can respond. But I have started businesses, several in fact, and some of them are still going. You're the one who has sold your business to a larger player. So take it away, Professor Wolf. This is Richard Wolf from Democracy at Work with another response to an Ask Prof Wolf question sent in by a member of our Patreon community. In this case, the question comes from Juan Patreon Pena. Community. He asks me to comment on whether converting businesses into worker co-ops 
uh, presumably from self-employed businesses or capitalist businesses, that is, businesses where there's an employer on one side and a group of hired employees on the other. So Juan is asking, if you want to convert one of these kinds of existing, regular, traditional businesses into a worker co-op, is it legal? Is it feasible? Can you raise the money? Are there restrictions? These are the kinds of practical questions that come to us fairly often, and, and Juan's is a nice catalog of them. So I'm going to try to answer briefly all of them. You may be surprised to learn that it is perfectly legal uh, to form uh, a business that is run as a democratic worker co-op where all the people are equal who work there, all the employees are equal, they have one voice each, one vote, all the basic business decisions, what to produce, what technology to use, where to locate the production, and perhaps most importantly, what to do with the output. Uh, if you sell the output, what to do with the revenue that you earn, how to divide it, how much to pay yourselves, how much to put aside to build your business, and so on. All of these kinds of activities can be done. It is completely legal, and there are many such worker co-ops all across the United States uh, of America, and they have been for quite a while, many, many years. It should be pointed out that many businesses have to be formed under state laws, not the federal government. And state laws are not the same in all 50 states. So, for example, in some states, it's much easier to form a worker co-op and to get the proper papers at the state government uh, to make it legal for you to function. Uh, in other states, it's harder. Uh, that will vary. You'd need to talk to uh, someone in an organization like the United States Worker Co-op Association, United States Federation of Worker Co-ops. There are a variety of institutions that will help you identify what the best states are to do this in, what the particular rules are in each state. Let me go on and deal with other questions Juan Pena asks. Is it possible to raise money uh, by a public GoFundMe kind of effort? The answer is yes. Basically, you are as free to raise money for a worker co-op business, excuse me, as you are for any other kind of business. You can borrow money to go into business, part or all of it. You can use money that has been saved up by the workers themselves. You can use uh, a grant if you can get one from a public agency. You can, if you wanted to, you could issue shares, get people to buy shares. You could get a local institution to give you the startup money, a church, uh, a large university. Who knows? All of these have happened, and all of these have their strengths and their weaknesses. But you should not assume that it is all that much more difficult to start a business as a small self-employed person or a small employer-employee operation as compared to a worker co-op. You will discover some difficulty, for example, with banks. They are used to dealing with a board of directors or an owner. And some of them still don't know how to deal with a group of workers who are their own boss, 
who run a worker co-op, where the workers are not only the people who do the work, but they're also their own employer, their own board of directors, if you like. But many banks over the years have had plenty of experience now with worker co-ops. And again, the United States Federation of Worker Co-ops or organizations like that will give you much good information about which banks make these kinds of loans, uh, what the conditions of these loans are, and so on. I would suggest that there is another way to go that you might want to think about. And in order to explain this to you, I'm going to give you an example from a country, Italy, uh, where this was done. Back in 1985, progressive legislators in the Italian parliament uh, pushed through and got voted in a law. It was called the Marcora Law, after the name of the legislator who led the effort. And the Marcora Law works in an interesting way. If you become unemployed in Italy, you have two choices. Number one, you can get your weekly unemployment check, pretty much like we do it here in the United States. But you have a plan B, an alternative you could choose. If you can find at least nine other unemployed people like yourself to agree, you can go as a group to the government, ask for and receive the entire bundle of money, the checks you would have gotten every week for a year, a year and a half, depending on the situation in Italy, as upfront lump sum. They give you the whole amount. Now, of course, you agree not to apply for unemployment, the way you did if you had chosen plan A, because you've gotten this lump sum in advance instead. And you must agree, you and the other nine, minimum other nine, that you'll use this lump sum to start and to work to make successful a worker co-op. And in this way, you won't be unemployed because you'll be working with your own money, on your own business. The, the Italian government believes it's no more money than they would have given you every week. You'll feel much better about yourself because you won't spend weeks and months sitting around feeling low self-esteem because you don't have a job. And you're going to work hard to make this succeed because you can't go back on unemployment. And it'll be a, a, a boost to creative energies to make a better life for the people involved. It's a better option. Well, big business didn't like this, didn't like the competition that was being created. So they tried to kill the law, they failed. It's still on the books in Italy, and here we are 30, whatever it is, 40 years later. So the message is, if you and other people could get together with folks like me, maybe we could get some laws like this passed either in a state or in the federal government, which will make it much, much easier, of course, for people like you and me to start worker co-ops. I hope this answers most of your questions. Thank you again. This is Richard Wolf for Democracy at Work. Okay, let's buzz in my co-host, Michael Walsh, also homegrown socialist. Uh, so we just finished the video by Richard Wolf. Um, did you watch it a previous time? So you know what it was talked yeah, about. Yeah, I did. So interesting thing about the Marcone Law, you can kind of counterfactual and say, well, Italy's economy isn't really that great. 
and it doesn't seem to have this robust co-op economy. Probably has more than America, but that's something to look into further. The other thing I want to look further into is actually what state is it easiest to start a worker co-op? Is it New Hampshire? Is it California? Is it Oregon? Interesting to know that maybe we should all flood there, make it the uh, like the, the co-op state project or something. Yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, so the other thing, so the next thing I want to, so actually, why don't you talk about, um, you mentioned either last episode or an episode before that, your interest in maybe you didn't call it a community loan fund, but it sounded like that. You yeah. wanted to, you wanted to yeah. start kind of a, a, a funding co-op for co-ops or, 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 or at least, cause that's usually, so we'll be, we'll be hitting on this again and again, this episode with the articles that there kind of needs to be a dedicated, grassroots funding stream that isn't banks, mortgage lenders, or nonprofit entities even because there'll be strings attached. What uh, what were you thinking about? So I'm learning, uh, I'm learning about banks that are directly owned and controlled by their account holders and also potentially banks that are owned and controlled by their uh, employees. And the different models, and there are different models of mutual banks and cooperative banks and more cooperative financial uh, institutions. I learned recently about uh, mutual insurance companies, which are insurance companies that are owned by their policyholders. And it's an in, it's, I feel like it's an idea that we, should utilize or that can be utilized that hasn't been of leftists kind of uh, figuring out, hey, let's use the institutions of capital against capital, like using money and pooling our money, but not uh, having it be like proprietor controlled by whoever owns and control a bank, whichever leftist, I'm, it's my leftist bank and I'm controlling it. And then they become a tyrant. It would be controlled by all of the individuals who contribute to it. Yeah. That's not what happens. So like you're describing kind of more. So there's the distinction between consumer co-ops where the business or enterprise is owned by those using it um, or the consumers and then there's the worker side where it's the people employed by it who are actually the owners, consumers, or just the beneficiaries of a union-run shop. Though there is, and this is some of the paradoxes I've kind of, when thinking about the history of the 20th century and today, that you know you had craft trade unions or just trade unions, the trades. They unionized through worker struggle to protect their jobs and incomes, and thus they have created a very good niche and a cartel system for themselves. And it's one of those things where housing prices or labor prices for construction are high because that is so, quote unquote, you know, corrupt, as in there's a cartel involved with control of how many people can be licensed as carpenters or pipe fitters. You know, these unions are big. They're pretty powerful when it comes to, like, pushing development through. And I kind of complain sometimes because there will be pipelines, big casino projects or whatever that are not really populist or egalitarian and they will be for it because they just want construction jobs. The thing about uh, consumer co-ops is that, yeah, most of the cooperative models, like the, a lot of cooperative options are consumer co-ops, not worker co-op. And I'm 
I don't really like that. I would prefer that any of those consumer co-ops were to be potentially joint worker consumer co-ops where the workers have a 50% uh, stake and the consumers have the other 50% stake or some type of arrangement like that. Yeah, there are hybrids like that. Like the local food co-op, they have worker owners where, but it's, it's technically, it's just, it's, it's may, oh, it is first and foremost a consumer co-op, but can, those who own shares can put in volunteer hours and then get a larger discount, um, which I've okay. done this year. But they kind of, like many others mentioned in the, in the rest of the episode, they wanted to expand and they built their own building and got their own land. And this required large bank loans from the credit union, local credit union, but they still like, like many of these credit unions and cooperatives, consumer or otherwise, that were started, uh, even producer co-ops, that were started in the Depression era uh, and when, the ups, when there was an upswell of worker struggle and whatever. But from the 50s on, they kind of got big, and then they've become part of the, co- the corporate e- uh, ecosystem Absolutely. instead of being a cooperative ecosystem. Now, we can probably, if, if there's radical politics infused in all of these, that won't happen, but or at least it will be more of a debate going forward. But right. it's like once you're successful, the radical politics, usually you become successful by shedding the radical politics. Otherwise, the things that did keep radical politics fell by the wayside because either of government repression during the 50s and 60s or they just they just didn't get. Yeah. And they just didn't get enough mass support to keep uh, supporting themselves to have the economic base. So that's another thought I have about, like, you know, co-op economy, co-op strategy by itself, of course. Of course, none of the strategies we talk about are meant to be taken by themselves. So I'll actually share something. So I just looked up very quickly and easily. It was in the when I, I just searched real estate cooperatives uh, because one of the when you think of general demands from the public, whether regardless of political affiliation, especially since most Americans don't have a political affiliation, but they still have demands. And they are usually along the lines of safety, jobs, and maybe a rough sketch of the means of earning a living. Now, as leftists, we ask the question, why does anyone need to earn a living? Right? This is an assumption that probably needs to be fought. Um, that's part of our propaganda. The other side of it is then like, well, what is the job for right now? Yeah, there's, as even which Richard Wolf right. points out, like it's a matter of esteem, feeling good about yourself. You need a job to be a full human or citizen. If you're not working, if you're not earning, quote unquote, learning your keep, you're scum, you know, you're nothing. Um, and this is terrible because it's very inhumane and it causes a lot of suffering and, you know, and people fall through the craps because they can't work or don't have the right skills or whatever. And it's all about all the policy, all the poverty alleviation is all about trying to like fill in these gaps of like, why don't just answering the question, why don't people have jobs instead of answering the question, why do people need jobs? When we, when really the question is about production, how much do we need to produce for everyone? And it's a question of needs, right? Each according to their need and ability and sacrifice, not, not ability to work 40, 60 hours. So, or policy, any policy, I'm thinking about like what really when it, like when we think of like why do we want to start co-ops? 
Is it to create jobs for ourselves? No, because that's basically still thinking in the capitalist mode of like job creation and working in the market. I'm thinking right. we want to start co-ops to meet our needs, right? To quote the battle cry of Macmillan, the rent is too damn high. We need co-ops <laughs> that lower the rent um, or eliminate the need to pay rent. So untangling that puzzle, that's to me the right question. So I'm going to look, I'm going to read the little write-up here by the Sustainable Economies Law Center. So this is one of those organizations that probably we should be talking to when we start our, our co-op because I'm definitely like aiming this direction because uh, either like there's so there's the stock trading, which is quick and easy and pretty easy. And there are people around me that are like, yeah, I put in 400 and I've already like made it uh, into 1500. Then there's the the community loan fund, uh, which is in, in our region anyway, is it's, it covers the region because it has to in order to kind of build enough of an economic base, I guess. And they have a thing where like, and I'm thinking of putting some of my STEMI check in there. Right. Which is like a minimum uh, investment is $1,000. But like, so you put it in for an amount of time, you can't take it out until that amount of time has passed. But the longer you put it in um, and keep it there, the higher rate of interest they promise. Mm. Which is a bit of a, it's inconvenient and a problem for most people who just want passive income generation. But of course, I have principles beyond that. But there's also the right. quality of, like, I'm sure, like, every progressive person that we know, we could really fundraise easily for co-ops, more so than, say, building a, a mass workers' party. All right? I'm not – it's hard to find Absolutely. donors for that. It's easy to find donors for co-ops or, like, this community enterprise. So here's um, – they're right up on the permanent real estate cooperative. They put in permanent uh, in there instead uh, to, to add on to it. So their vision – for this. The Law Center is piloting a new model of cooperative real estate we've named the Permanent Real Estate Cooperative or the PERC, which will permanently take land off the speculative market and into community stewardship. The PERC simultaneously decommodifies land, enables community control for structurally excluded communities, disrupts root causes of racial inequality. Unlike a conventional housing cooperative, which is formed to provide housing to a defined group of residents, PERC could be described as a movement cooperative because it is designed to provide housing, build a large membership base, serve members, collective goal to transform our neighborhoods and our systems of finance and land ownership. This is my first time reading this, by the way. Our vision is for a typical perk to have hundreds of thousands of members who look around at the land and buildings in their community and think, we should be owning this, rather than watching the fate of their communities be determined by wealthy speculators, larger companies, and absentee landlords, or even public, or even government. Perk members will build collective power, pools of capital, skills, organized communities that can take action, shape future, blah, blah, blah. In 2017, the Law Center helped officially incorporate the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Co-op in collaboration with the People of Color Sustainable Housing Network. A community of over a 1,000 people, people of color especially, interested in building intentional, healthy, collective, affordable housing in the Bay Area and beyond. We have convened a series of community design sessions to further refine the PERC model and develop a participatory government structure with multiple volunteer-led working groups. It's horizontalism. 
It is now an autonomous cooperative with a dynamic staff, collectively, uh, led primarily by women, people of color, those uh, PWOs. Um, in late 28 and 2019, still very recent, it expects to take title to its first property, a Berkeley home donated for joint stewardship by E.B. Perk and the Oakland Community Land Trust. So there's a community land trust in Oakland. They apparently are donating their first property. Here's the model, basic structure. Entity, a perk has at least three built-in perks. <laughs> uh, a cooperative primary governing body is chosen and major decisions are made on a one-member, one-vote basis, meaning democracy. Cooperative corporations are limited in their ability to pay high returns on capital, meaning they cannot be vehicles for making the wealthy wealthier. Their law center, writing this, recently helped write and pass a law that increased California cooperative Corporation Securities Exemption, allowing them to raise capital by selling membership shares for up to $1,000 each. So that's the same amount as the Community Loan Fund here in Albany. So they have a decentralized organizing structure. The vision for PERC is that they are decentralized or PERCs. Uh, they're decentralized orgs, a DO, DOA, DOE. Well, more, more on that later. Groups of members can take initiative, self-organize, search for properties, raise capital, and shepherd housing into the cooperative with a board and staff serving supportive role, you know, like leadership, uh, but not dictators. Home buying. Members who live on the cooperative's properties will pay a purchase price for a long-term diminishing rent lease, and the experience will stimulate direct home ownership in many ways. Monthly payments will be reduced over time as residents pay off the purchase price. So that's kind of like it's a cross between a rent-to-own and what a community land trust does, where the community, the trust owns the land on it, and people buy the house on the land, right? That way, you're not paying property taxes on it, so it does it, it lowers the upkeep costs and whatever. Because oh. the trust is owns the land, and they continue to, but the building on the land is something that you are mostly renting from them but you're renting as a form of uh, ownership, I guess. Um, but you, right. you're, you're in control of it. You, you're not renting with a lease where it's like you can't mess with this or whatever. Uh, resident control. The cooperative will set minimum standards of maintenance, but the residents will control most decisions related to property. Right, that's, that, that's what I kind of mean. The one thing that comes to mind that's a concern of mine is that, like, with community land trust, there's it's kind of a to me, a bougie value of like being concerned with home ownership. That's like, right. we want people to just rent less. And cause that's, it's like having a job. The perfect like life is owning your home. And, uh, which is of course, I think we agree with, but there's, but again, there's, there's hazards to that. Like any, even petty landlord, a petite landlord will tell you that most tenants or most people do not have the skills to maintain a property or be a homeowner. Now, these are all skills we can learn, but there is something about living in cooperative society that kind of entails the division of labor, that there be dedicated uh, maintenance people, you know, a building manager, so on, property managers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the, it would just be decided by the people who live there. Yeah. Now, now some things like that cooperatives do, like especially in, uh, in the New York City area, that's kind of the, their downfall is that they hire out a third party to manage the building for them. 
which mm-hmm. is then a problem because then that third party management company, which is like this real, it's a capitalist real estate company. And then they, right. you're, you're injecting, you're, you're, they suck all of the cooperative and, and, and leftist energy right. out of you. In fact, they, or they tie the co-op board's hands because basically the co-op board not wanting to have to manage the building too much work, couldn't do it, uh, too stressful. It's like, just take care of this for us. Well, it, you're dealing with the devil now. Right. Instead, maybe they just should hire direct building managers that then are accountable to the residents instead. Um, Cause what I like the, so like this, the one idea yeah. that I had actually thought about was the idea that one of the residents is appointed or chosen to be the manager and that their dues or their fees that they pay or their contributions to the cooperative in another way are waived in their waived yeah, 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 yeah. compensation is their uh, quarters and their they don't have to do anything else. That's their contribution to the arrangement. Yeah, like I've, if I was a landlord, and and maybe in the future I will be of, of a type uh, as I try to convert property into this some kind of co-op model. And I'm still that's that's the thing I'm doing right now. I'm debating what kind of model should I really actually focus on starting. Um, and it, maybe it'll be decided by the means around me. You know, I can't collect enough people to start a collective, so maybe I need to start some legal entity first and raise money, and that will attract people to join. And then it doesn't have to be mean some friends. But on the other side of things, then it just makes it kind of well. I mean, you grow a family through cooperative housing. I've seen it in action. Let me continue with this. Uh, price stabilization. Uh, when a member sells their lease, because you are leasing when you join it, they will receive a predetermined price that will give them a modest return, likely tied to co- consumer price index, on their purchase price, as well as compensation for improvements. This ensures that housing will be affordable for the next buyer, and it means that a bidding process, which always privileges the wealthy, will no longer be the method by which communities allocate housing and land resources. Which is why, you know, the thing I don't like about, say, the county land bank we have, it really is based on who has the money in their bank account. Mm. So they're kind of selling more properties to not people who aren't going to be living in them. Like, they'll sell it to people who intend to rent them. Because they just, right. their priority is, we just want to get these vacant properties fixed up. So right. when people say, I just want this block to not be blighted anymore, be careful what you wish for. Um, it may just price you out, uh, which it usually does. Now it says, how do perks are different? How are they different from a community land trust? Okay, this is important to me. So um, CLTs and perks have many similarities and merge from the same movement toward equitable democratic control of land. Both engage community members in governance, permanently remove real estate from the speculative market. A primary difference is that a land trust is a 501 nonprofit. A cooperative, the cooperative structure of a perk create promising opportunities. Co-op, co-op corporations have a flexibility to take capital in multiple forms, meaning that financing options are greatly expanded. So that's kind of, that's the limitation of the, of the land trust and why since the eighties or, or at least their growth is like a property year and they really can't do more than that. Um, maybe, uh, cooperatives are platforms for mutual aid and self-help not charitable assistance. Charities can sometimes create a disempowering divide between the helpers and the helped. That's also a culture that I get from the land trust. 
The cooperative structure transforms the relationship to create empowered groups. So where did the perks come from? Well, this phrase is a creation of the law center writing this, and it uses the to it uses to describe the uh, land ownership model that begins to strike a chord with many of our partner organizations and clients. The model combines features of a land trust, limited equity housing co-op, and a real estate investment co-op, uh, which is what I, which we covered in uh, I've covered in the past, where a a group of like a hundred neighbors put in a thousand dollars each or a few thousand or some savings and they bought up a strip mall so that they could rent cheaply to local businesses. Because when it comes to what is, how or why are all these local businesses failing, right? Now it's not like, yeah, they had to close for half the year, right? Because of the freaking pandemic, but they should be able to close. They have maybe some savings. Or, you know, that, but why? It's because they still have to pay rent, commercial rent. Now, there was a memorandum put on commercial evictions, but you have all of these real estate companies. These aren't all petty landlords, uh, petite landlords. I keep saying petty, petite landlords, small landlords, like maybe they own five properties and they're not like money hungry, but they, they do want the income for their own tax, you know, taxes, whatever. But you have big companies uh, like the owner of the mall. They're suing the um, tenants in the food court. Like, you know, the mall was closed. They weren't making money. And it just happens to be the two Chinese places, by the way. And, and so maybe they do other shady things on the side. I don't know. But they're suing them for all the back rent that they, of course, can't pay. Uh, same goes for my bookshop owner friend. So can perks change the world? Not quite, but a widespread perk movement can do so. As people begin to reject the inequitable and exploitative nature of conventional land ownership and financing structures, people everywhere will be looking to be part of the solution. The perk itself is designed to foster movement building. Anyone can join and support a perk. A perk um, and the decentralized organizing structure can spur rapid scaling and leadership growth. Because, you know, when you, when you have horizontalism, everyone kind of gets semi-trained. Um, so you don't have that class of skilled labor of bureaucrats. And that's kind of what the main critique of the Soviet Union and other types of Leninist or party-based socialism comes in, where you get a, you create a class of bureaucrats to, you know, that are the leadership. And then you're not really getting towards classlessness. Right. Now, now, to the mutualist uh, ideology that you kind of we'll, – we'll cover that probably in full sometime, but I need more articles that relate to it. There was one description from the main text on mutualism from, like, the 19th century that pointed out that there are kind of four central monopolies that we kind of need to abolish or get over, which is there's the monopoly of currency, which is why we talked about alternative currencies. There's the monopoly of – well, the, other, the second one was land, okay? So there's the, there's the monopoly of land. Oh, yeah, and then the monopoly of copyright. And what was the, third? What was the fourth cop, uh, monopoly? Violence? Probably. Yeah, it was probably violence. But I don't think it was. Because they were, they were all kind of economic in nature. But, like, so we have to do away with the copyright, monopoly of copyrights, monopoly of land ownership. And uh, right. currency as well, the fiat currency, because that, you know, banks or private entities control where loans and money come from um, right. or how it's created. Otherwise, the printing machine in the Federal Reserve has to go burr uh, <laughs> indefinitely. Uh, what does it mean to buy into cooperative housing? 
If you buy into a house or building, the cooperative will structure your purchase to stimulate homeownership as closely as possible, you know, rent to own. The main exception is that rather than selling your share on the speculative housing market, you will later sell your share at a predetermined price. The price will be designed to pay you a rate of return that is more akin to a savings account and likely tied to a common index, like consumer price. So this is what the community loan fund kind of what I explained. The formula is designed to stabilize the price of housing for future residents. For example, if you buy a unit for 200000 you might sell it 10 years later for 239000 plus the cost of improvements you made or minus the cost of restoring a property to good condition. Ideally, the cooperative itself will purchase your unit and then sell it to another cooperative owner. While you live there, you may well be making monthly payments to a co-op, to the co-op. Legally speaking, the cooperative holds title to property and you will be a tenant of them. When you purchase, when you buy in, is a diminishing rent lease, which is a type of lease designed to stimulate home ownership. This is similar to the, um, there's a Spanish town with a communist uh, government or mayor, and they have like a housing program where they give you the materials to buy, uh, to build a house and the plot of land, and you basically pay $99 rent uh, for 80 years or something. Or rather, it's like a life lease, but the le- but the rent is less than $100. And then and the rules are you can't resell it. How will the cooperative finance everything? So uh, this is, let's see what their answer here is. Cooperative will aim to build a large ownership base in order to raise substantial capital. And then those debates of questions of like, does each shareholder have the same vote as someone, say, who lives in the building? Um, how do you balance, right? Because like, there's still like this, the ownership base still want a return or they want like people, the tenants to pay their rents, you know? So there's still this, maybe there's still an antagonism there that, that isn't completely resolved. That's why it's like either have every resident be the people who invested, but it's hard to find people with enough money to do that. Uh, that's why the current, like all the co-ops and, and cooperatives that were started in the seventies were done by middle-class people who borrowed money and, um, and they're usually in trouble. Like I, I think I covered this a year ago about the the co cooperative housing collective that like the, yeah they they're the, that's why I got that story from about um, bringing in a third party to manage things their finances because all of this stuff can be mildly complicated and if you don't have like if you're not a CPA uh, or some kind of account or you hire an accountant but again that's another expense sometimes co ops are like they 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 hemorrhage money because they hired a, an accountant to manage their finances. Um, and, that, and that's the same goes for small business owners. So you need like a cooperative accountancy firm or something that. And cooperatives, what do they do for the profits? Well, uh, let me go forward with this. Well, we'll well, this will not be enough to continuously acquire properties. This amount will enable the cooperative to ledger, leverage capital in other forms and from other sources, such as banks, cities, and other institutions. So the thing is, when like you, when you raise money from your grassroots base, that's just the, for the down payment or just for like the asset. So then you can get a loan from a bank. But it's still like right. you're still interacting with. Well, a significant portion of our community's wealth is tied up in savings invested in Wall Street. That's one sentence. What's up with that? However, the vision is to source as much capital as possible from the grassroots. 
As movements grow and encourage divestment from fossil fuels and other extractive industries, growing numbers of individuals, businesses, and large institutions, like other foundations, are searching for alternative investments. A permanent real estate co-op is designed to be a vehicle to enable divestment from Wall Street and reinvestment in local economics. In order to solicit and receive this capital from ordinary people uh, in communities, the cooperative will have to obtain a permit to offer securities from the state of California, which I guess this is where they're based, as they also mentioned the Bay Area. What will co-op do if it's profits? So in sum, financially speaking, here's what it means to be a cooperative owner. All owners will likely receive a small dividend representing return on their ownership share. Owners who pay dues and participate in events and activities will also likely receive a small dividend representing a refund on dues and other payments. Uh, owners who are residents will also likely receive a dividend representing a refund on rent, quote-unquote, and they will receive a small return when they sell a unit for a share of housing. So that's their write-up and explanation of their, uh, of the FERC. Wait, is, there was another question here where it was like, why is it, couldn't you name it something better than a FERC? Um, and they go like, oh yeah, couldn't you, couldn't you get a, a different sounding, a better sounding acronym? Trust us, we tried and gave up. Embrace it. Perk the city. Perk the planet. So there we go from the Sustainable Economies Law Center. Could we, oh yes. Yeah. So, so the last one, I think we, yeah, 10 minutes. So this is, um, Michael, can you bring up the interview when co-ops meet DOAs, an interview with Nathan Schneider? Absolutely. Yeah, it's an interview, so we can take turns reading it. I'll start with just the explanation here. This is a file by an Ola Knut, and where is a? It's a. It's in a blog. I'll be linking to it. Nathan Schneider is a journalist and professor of media studies at the University of Colorado in Boulder. He was among the first journalists to cover the Occupy Wall Street movement, and more recently, he offered the book Everything for Everyone, the Radical Tradition that is Shaping the Next Economy, in which he looks at how co-ops can become the basis of a democratic economy. We caught up with Nathan in August in Berlin, asking him to share his views on the existing co-op model, how can they be modernized and applied to a digital economy. We also talked about the concept and application of decentralization practices in tech, that's the blockchain episode, uh, going back to that, and exchange ideas on how to increase accountability and leadership in the Web 3.0 space. Here's a transcript. At Artark, uh, we are building open source tools on Aragon to serve digital co-ops, and this is also one of the main topics you are exploring. Dot, dot, dot. Yes, that is a... That's a big question for me. Are there ways in which these digital tools can help new cooperatives get off the ground more easily, but also can they be used by older cooperatives to claim some of their potential? That's a big ask because those older cooperatives are very conservative. They're very careful with their members' money and struggling to keep up with better capitalized competitors. There is some promise there, though, especially the ability to use things like DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, and shared governance technologies to recapture the lateral member-to-member -member relationship that made cooperatives take off in the first place. Could you share some of your favorite functioning examples of cooperatives operating nowadays? There are a few 
pixels that lurk around in the economy. In the U.S., the most wealthy corner of the cooperative movement is the credit unions, which are also a very powerful movement here in Germany. These organizations grew by serving communities that didn't have access to financial institutions. They were able to do that because they were built upon the member-to-member -member relationship. They built on the idea that people in a neighborhood could decide who was creditworthy better than some banker who never set foot there based on relationships, based on reputation systems, based on a stake. As these institutions grew, they received public policy frameworks and regulation to support their growth, and now they operate like a nicer nonprofit version of banks. About a third of U.S. citizens are members of these institutions, which constitute a powerful piece of infrastructure where people can put their money in a place that feeds their community. So what does the next generation of traditional credit union cooperatives look like? How can we really use this model as a lever to transform the current economic system rather than just work around the edges? Another example of a contemporary cooperative is Associated Press. Because it's a cooperative owned by members of various news organizations, it is very much invested in supporting small news outlets because it's membership model. Nobody accuses AP of spreading, quote, fake news. Its cooperative incentive structure results in factual, reliable information. This is one of the few media organizations that can compare to the reach of Facebook. AP claims to reach half the population of the world every day. Not everything in the economy needs to be a cooperative, but that uh, cooperatives can play a vital role that enable other kinds of businesses to function and have better feedback loops. Why don't more cooperatives operate on a large scale competing with the big tech giants? There's nothing about cooperatives that restricts the sale other than really financing access. One characteristic of cooperatives, too, is that when they work at larger scales, they tend to work as federations, so they're not claiming the whole market. They're actually just realigning it. While working at a large scale, they actually exist to support the smaller players in the, or the, in the dynamism of the market, rather than to eat up the whole market all onto themselves. And that's really exciting difference enabling them to support local and diverse businesses, rather than trying to disrupt and consume small players into non-existence. Do you have any data on cooperatives operating globally? The data is very hard to come by. In the U.S., for example, we don't count cooperatives in our censuses, although that is about to change. And data comes from self-reporting. Globally, 10% of employment happens through cooperatives, and certain countries have very significant cooperative economies. In Kenya, cooperatives generate half the GDP. Wow. In northern Italy, significant portions of agricultural and even industrial activity happens via cooperatives. And in New Zealand, virtually the entire dairy market operates as a cooperative. Everyone who's been around cooperatives for a long time says that we are in an explosive moment, and the interest in this model is very high, but the barriers are also very high. As the online co-op structures that people are trying to create are not yet supported by the economy and the legal frameworks. We are in the process of trying to build the ecosystem to enable appropriate financing for cooperatives in the digital economy. 
Yeah, so that's a lot of underground news there that's kind of unreported um, mm-hmm. on the growth of this or, or the existence of that. I think mentioning Italy there, like maybe that um, all those architectural, uh, agricultural co-ops in northern Italy are probably, that could be for that Marcone law mentioned by Wolf. So anyway, the question, are cooperatives a viable alternative to the dominant corporate models? There is a perception out there that venture-backed companies are more efficient, and that's why they get the funding, while cooperatives don't. But the VC model only became possible when legal constraints on it were lifted. Similarly, co-ops have been able to scale in various sectors when supported by legal frameworks were put in place. Thus, there is a $128 billion co-op bank in my area in Colorado, and there are co-ops in the United States that own nuclear power plants. If we as a society want to make co-ops more of a dominant economy, we can't. We just need to make sure they have the tools and rules in place that they need, like any other kind of business. Now, this um, this answer here like brings up the question in my mind of like how much of the economy needs to be cooperative before it stops being like capitalist uh, or acting like like all the all with all the negatives of the capitalist markets. You know that it's exploitative. Maybe it doesn't, and that's kind of the that's the uh, option represented by the other tendencies. But um, but co-ops seem to be going way more or way more mainstream than than many other kinds of like left-leaning strategies. So uh, the question here is, what's the difference between old cooperative models and the most contemporary ones that you explored? Well, a few years ago, I reported on the Catalan Integral Cooperative, a remarkable young cooperative based in Barcelona that is involved in various projects from farms and a reclaimed factory to urban housing and healthcare. I thought they must be inspired by the Mondragon Corporation, a massive worker co-op in nearby Bass County. But they told me no, they didn't want jobs. Their whole purpose is to get rid of this idea that you have to have a job your whole life. Their purpose is to liberate people from capitalism and from the economy, not to just establish themselves within the industrial order. Catalan Integral Cooperative's objective is to generate a self-managed post-capitalist society based on peer-to-peer principles. While there are certainly lessons to be drawn from the older cooperative models, such as Mondragon, the CIC example shows that there are also ways in which modern cooperatives are trying to solve different problems and have different visions for what they're trying to achieve. Now, that's a, that's a really good point there. And there's more here. We're running out of time this hour. I'm thinking uh, this is longer than I thought it was. I don't know why I thought it was short when I skimmed it before. Um, but there's a lot of great points here, especially with these, these new co-op, like this new co-op in Catalonia, which is different from Mondragon, which is usually wheeled out as being like, this is the co-op economy we are advocating for. It kind of isn't because it is about like, that's job creation, but doing it commun- like with you know, cooperatively. Let's do one more. Is it possible to register a transnational digital cooperative today? Uh, it is, but sometimes we need to bend the rules in order to achieve, achieve the things that are commonplace in our online economy. That's one of the opportunities that the blockchain space represents, offering us a new tool set that we can use to explore and develop what it means to be a cooperative member in the new context.
is this? Something from overnight insulin emergency providers? Going once, twice, nope. Okay, garbage time. Bye-bye, box. Go up. Mind the water shut off today. Go up. The super just walked away. Go up. I'd rather squat in a long than stay in this one stop First, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories, topics, or rantings you message on Facebook, Twitter at 3 Left Show. You can also email at 3 Left Show at Gmail. This program is made as a part of independent community radio. So support us materially, along with other producers and citizen journalists, with a donation or membership to WCAALP at grandarts.org. Capitalism doesn't value this work, so to support myself personally, become a member of my Patreon, which is also at 3 Left Show. Support the show with your time by telling others you believe would be interested, liking and sharing and checking in on our social media pages, as word of mouth is our best advertising. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps like Stitcher, Apple Store, and Google Play. But a full archive of the podcast, along with links, sources, and notes, are found at 3lefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the 3 Lefts. Press the mountain bump, the water bill, the fresh 
Welcome back to the second hour of the three left show with my host, Michael Walsh, co-host. So let's just pick up where we left off. Uh, we were covering a interview with a Nathan Schneider, who is a journalist, covered Occupy, covers co-ops. And he lives in Colorado, where he was saying, he was asked, like, where, where like, see, it was actually a question I had earlier this uh, episode. Where is the easiest place to start co-ops? He suggests Colorado is pretty nice. So Colorado is becoming, as our lawyers say, the Delaware of cooperatives. There's also an EU-wide statute for a European cooperative society, which aims to help cooperatives who have activities in more than one EU country. You can always work with statutes, and they're not that hard to change, especially locally. The real challenge is creating an economic market around these businesses that knows how to invest in them. So that there's technical financial knowledge, which is super. So I guess more leftists need those uh, business degrees or something like that. Um, that's like pulling teeth, though, because you have to go through all those <laughs> yeah. like you have to go through all those right wing economics courses. Um, but I guess that's where you can uh, culture jam and stuff, as uh, a busters yeah. would say. So um, next question, and you can pick up the answers, Mike. Uh, from the consumer or user perspective, what would this new cooperative-based economy change? I'm sorry. Can you vamp for a minute? My dog is freaking oh, out. Yeah. I think I got them. Okay. So I'll continue with this answer as well. Uh, Nathan answers, my hope is that this kind of model could shift some of the accountability problems we currently face across the spectrum. A new feedback loop of accountability would be introduced, and for instance, tech companies would lose interest in exploiting their users because the users would now be they're business owners. We would have to build a model that is oriented very differently from the outset. Moreover, we would have to create frameworks where, as a society, we have a say in the institutions that we depend on. I'll imagine that. Uh, where we own our problems. Because that's the thing. We, we complain about problems mostly because we don't own it. We don't have any control over our problems. And that's what makes us sick mentally and probably physically. Uh, rather than just saying, oh, those evil corporations are causing all these problems. I, that, that really it does make us feel helpless, doesn't it? We also need to be aware, and this has been recognized in the blockchain space, that this just because an organization is decentralized, it doesn't mean the problem goes away. It just means that you have a different framework for addressing it. And to me, that's the hope. All right, I'm back. Okay, so next, go to, go to the question that starts is, do you see blockchains as a disruptive technology? Well, I first learned about the Ethereum white paper in early 2014 when I was touring with my book on Occupy Wall Street. I experienced this protest movement as being full of people craving a pure, more accountable, responsive kind of democracy. Ethereum really caught my attention because it kind of represents something where we can actually start trying those new kinds of democracies that people were craving in the protest camps all around the world. It provides a space where we can iterate on governance fast and where we can develop new responsive forms of democracy, which are both efficient and accountable. Since then, it feels like it feels less like a moment where we are craving for democracy. It feels more like the whole idea of democracy is in a massive crisis. And if we don't sort out some real accountable institutions fast, democracy is going away. 
So I've been excited about the really creative mechanism designs fluctuating in the decentralization space. I want to bring them back to those old co-ops. At the same time, I think there is too much faith in that one mechanism will solve all our problems. There's maturity coming into play now where people are recognizing it might be a little more complicated than that. But the truth is, the blockchain space enables tremendous creativity going into what the future of accountability could look like. There's also a potential to learn a lot of lessons from what came before and apply them in new ways. The kind of voting systems we have now in democratic governments, for instance, are just too poor at accounting for imbalancing preferences. And there is a potential for tremendous innovation in the DOA space. But there are also forgotten lessons to be learned from offline governance. Sortition, for instance, is the selection of public officials at a simple or at a random sample from a larger pool of candidates. It is a system intended to ensure that all competent and interested parties have an equal chance of holding public roles. It was very prominent in the Athenian democracy, for example, but is much less prominent now. And actually, it's a system that has a whole lot of really nice features. So we have balancing expertise and populism, but it is going to be very hard to implement that in our governments now. In the blockchain space, however, we could try out 15 different kinds of sortition systems and see how they work. As we play with all of these different kinds of fun mechanisms, we can't forget that there's a lot more to governance than voting. The point of good governance is that it fades into the background. When it's working well, democracy consumes less of our attention, not more. Amen. There's another third of this uh, left, but I want to move forward. I encourage all to read the rest of this. A link will be provided in show notes or whatever sources page I, I attach it to whenever I publish an episode via podcast. I want to move on next to, and I'm, Mike, I'm, I'm, if you're open to reading more of this as well, we can also break it up amongst ourselves. The Jewish Currents article called The Rise and Fall of the Copes. Put it up. So Jewish, Jewish Currents is a left-leaning slash left-wing. It's, it's actually quite socialist at times, and um, you'll see uh, how that's expressed. And I actually got a subscription to them for a year. I did not renew it but because um, it was a gift. <laughs> but otherwise, uh, really like them. Really carrying on the left-wing Jewish tradition. Yeah. So at the turn of the 20th century, the northern edge of the Bronx, uh, which now includes some of the poorest neighborhoods of New York City, was dotted with the grand estates of Gilded Age capitalists. By the 20s, however, the villages of the Bronx had been incorporated into the growing city of New York, hoping to attract real estate speculators. The city extended subway access to the area and opened it to development. Fun funny that, you know, building the subway before the development, like that cannot be done today. And it's like, you know, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's done in China, but... Like there was this picture shared on Facebook where it's like a train station, but there's nothing there. I'm like, well, yeah, the the intention is that stuff will pop up around it. Between 1926 and 1929, thousands of working class Jewish city residents, many living in slum conditions on the Lower East Side, 
pool their money and build large cooperative developments in the Bronx. Labor Zionists built the Farband houses. Yiddish preservationists built the Shalom Alechem houses and the amalgamated clothing workers of America, a union led by Abraham Katzen, a social Democrat who would go on to become New York's most prolific cooperative developer, built the amalgamated houses. In the late 20s, Calvin Trillin quipped in New Yorker 50 years later, a Jewish garment worker who wanted to move his family from the squalor of the Lower East Side to the relatively sylvan North Bronx could select an apartment out of the basis of ideology. Sorry, I like to add a little bit add of some the, flair, yes. the 50 I can, I can also, um, maybe when, we, when we're quoting some of the uh, co-op veterans, I'll use the accent that my grandma had. <laughs> well, the most storied of the Bronx Jewish cooperatives sat just east of the borough's botanical gardens in the Allerton neighborhood. The United Workers Cooperatives, better known as the Coops, rhymes with stoops, uh, were established in 1927 by the United Workers Association, UWA, a cooperative labor organization affiliated with the industrial workers of the world and composed largely of Yiddish-speaking communists in the garment industry. We want to build a fortress for the working class against his enemies, the group proclaimed in 925 advertisement in the New York Yiddish dailies. 700 families chipped in to build a sprawling apartment complex spanning two full city blocks. It featured common kitchens, social halls, in an approximately 20,000-volume library cataloged by two librarians. The Coops were unique among the Bronx cooperatives in their revolutionary spirit. Residents saw their home not just as an apartment complex, but as a forward operating base for the communist movement. These New York Jewish communists, Vivian Gornick wrote in her book The Romance of American Communism, were, quote, a nation without a country. But for a brief moment, a generation, they did have a land of their own, two square blocks in the Bronx. But the radical commitments that gave the Coops their aura almost stopped the development from being built in the first place and pointed towards its demise. The UWA formed in 1913 in order to buy a 10-unit apartment building in East Harlem where members lived communally and ran a restaurant and a library. They also bought a large tract of land near the upstate town of Beacon and started camped uh, Nitzkadigit. I, I, I tried to look up how to pronounce it, too. It's a Yiddish word meaning carefree. Ah, uh, Nitzkadigit. Yeah, let's, let's, go, with, let's go with that. Yeah, that sounds right. Where striking workers could spend the summer for $15 a week. Inspired by their success, some workers in the UWA proposed that the group established a full-fledged cooperative housing complex. The communists in that group were initially skeptical. How far could such a project really go under capitalism? Could a housing complex organized around communist ideals endure in a commodified real estate market without negotiating on its principles. Despite these questions, the enthusiasm among UWA members for large-scale cooperative housing was so great that the communists ultimately embraced and came to direct the project as a radical effort, 
social housing as a weapon in the class struggle, rather than simply a road out of poverty for its members. It survived for 16 years. That's not a very long time, and we'll kind of go into how, why, why that's such a small number. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know why you put that survive for 16 years, like in the, the early part of this article. I feel like that information should be left, like when they're explaining its history. Anyway, so working class tenants in the early 20th century New York faced an ongoing crisis. I don't think I have to explain all that. There were rent wars, rent strikes, and all kinds of stuff. Uh, Jewish immigrant population Lower East Side, but at the heart of the movement. At the same time, middle-class progressive reformers seeking to improve the lot of urban poor lobbied for building code legislation and encouraged philanthropists to build better housing for workers, top-down, charity-based, whatever. But these efforts did not always work for the benefit of tenants. As housing became more regulated and thus more expensive to build, developers responded by building homes for the wealthy. Sound familiar? The working poor went from suffering in substandard housing to fighting to be housed at all. So that's kind of the bind of capitalist markets or the real estate industry, that it either the in order for the poor to be housed, it has to be crap. And if you try to regulate it so the housing isn't crap, then the poor housing doesn't get built. The prospect of cooperative housing offered workers a different path. The UWA decided to create a large-scale cooperative in 1925, taking out ads and leftist papers like the Daily Worker and the Morgan Freinheit, inviting all workers to join them. Membership was restricted to anyone who earned their living by the sweat of their brows. They borrowed a cooperative housing model from the Finnish immigrants who had created one in Brooklyn called Alku, beginning in Finnish. Um, now, this itself was also based on ownership principles, called the Rockdale Principles, devised in 1844 by the British Cooperative Association. Going back, so it's all just a long, unbroken chain of cool. The workers who fronted the money for the coops wielded significant influence on the development's design. Each building took up only half its lot, allowing space for a plant-filled courtyard. Visitors from around the city came to admire the ivy-covered brick walls, bountiful gardens, and stone pools filled with koi fish. There's a space for working mothers, informal nursery, uh, lots of kids' programs. I'm going to skip forward because this is pretty long. They were called the Koopniks. Tied to, tried to, who tried to expand that family that they built in solidarity with black struggle for justice. The board explicitly reserved apartments for black families facing systemic housing discrimination and residents picketed facilities that discriminated against people of color, such as the nearby Bronxwood Pool. Angie Dickerson, a black radical tenant organizer, freedom fighter, and senior member of the Civil Rights Congress, along with her two brothers, lived there. They received visitors like Dubois and Paul Robeson and other uh, black Communist Party members. Some Koopniks claimed that actively pursuing integration would dilute the development's Yiddish culture, and the complex remained overwhelmingly inhabited by Ashkenazi Jews. But despite this resistance, said Stephen Payne, an archivist at the Brox County Historical Society, the Coops were, quoting him, one of the most remarkable moments of intentional militant interracial solidarity in the borough, probably in all of New York City. This attempt at working class unity was short-lived, though. From the outset, ideological charged atmosphere of the Coops created a sectarianism beyond belief. A former resident named Babe Polanski 
wrote in the anniversary book, some splits concern major questions of politics and identity. Arguments about communist party affiliate affinity divided friends and families, particularly after Joseph Stalin signed a non-aggression pact with the Nazis in 1939. Always that molotov Ribbentrop pact. It ruined everything, I swear. It comes up again and again with, like, why did these great movements just get chaotic? You know, and the, the, the unity didn't last, you know. It's always that goddamn molotov Ribbentrop pact. Anyway. Or, or you could go backwards and say, like, there was leftist unity of a sort when, you know, it was, it was way more anarchist-centric. It was almost, you know, anarchism was the dominant a leftism until the Russian revolution and create a state. And then there was all this crackdown because, or it could be argued why the Russian revolution was so good because like now there was something that was actually a threat to capital. All this anarchist labor organizing wasn't really, it was putting some dents, but it wasn't really challenging the system. A worker state led by the Bolsheviks was, and that's why all the governments were suddenly had their asses on fire when it came to fighting the scourge of of the of workers movements. Right. <laughs> oh, complicated. It's, it's not it's gray. It's not there's not one thing moving forward. So some of the internal problems. Other conflicts, however, grew out of day-to-day difficulties of sustaining a large radical co-op in a capitalist country. The development's co-op services like the grocery and laundromat were quickly priced out by neighboring stores which paid workers less than the union wages afforded to the co-op workers. Their attempt at a medical co-op never took off as well. People want, went for bargains, Bella Habaski wrote in the 50th anniversary book, and some residents just didn't grasp the principles of cooperative living. Ideological divisions took shape over issues like the development shared electric meter. Residents who wanted to maintain the collectivized billing structure called those who wanted to dismantle it individualists. But the coop's material challenges and the conflicts they engendered became more daunting when the economy collapsed a few years later. The coop's no eviction policy and its use of empty units to shelter families evicted from the privately owned buildings uh, deepened their debts because apparently they funded all of this with um, rather they, 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 again, like, like the other model, they scooped together all their savings, what little they had, to get the ball rolling so they could take out large mortgages, right? So, But they're still beholden to a lending company at the end of the day. And the stock market crash also created new opportunities for state repression of the coops. The complex regularly found itself under FBI surveillance. Thank you, Hoover. As well as more mundane repression by the New York political machine. When an insurgent socialist party called the American Labor started winning local elections, the state legislator divided the former 6th Assembly District at Britain Street, which split the coops in half in order to split the socialist vote. Mock American democracy in action. In response to the Great Depression, the federal government brought, bought and refinanced one million mortgages across the U.S., when doing so, appraisers were sent around the country to grade neighborhoods on their credit risk, thus creating the red line maps. Allerton area was then deemed type C and outlined in yellow, which signified an area was declining. The report cited detrimental influences, such as the neighborhood's 
communistic reputation, lenders were encouraged to be conservative. Fakes to the New York State Memorandum on Foreclosure, this is during the Great Depression era, the coups staved off collapse for the decade, remaining a haven for working people. But by 43, as war spending lifted the economy, the state government rolled back that memorandum and the coupes directors had to negotiate new terms with their mortgage lender. The two sides came to a provisional agreement, but it meant that tenants had to pay one more dollar per room per month. Significant, but not overwhelming amount at the time, but sparked a fiery debate, which led to uh, the Koopniks basically not approving that rent increase because it went against the principles of no rent increases, which is kind of sad. But, like, if they did, then they would basically lose their radical character. It covers, the, this article covers also the, the co-ops, like the, the co-ops that were started by the Social Democrat Kazan. Could the coops have saved themselves? When pushed to relax their policy against rent increases, could they have bent instead of broken? It's easy to see the project as the victim of its own inflexibility, as some former residents do. The Coop's demise holds, quote, lessons for today, said Sylvia Mannheim, 95, who was 18 when the Koopniks lost ownership of their complex. In an interview, quote, people should learn how to negotiate and listen more carefully and not be so dogmatic. And indeed, Abe Kazan's amalgamated houses, which displayed a greater willingness to work with the powers of state and capital from the onset, is the only complex among the Bronx Jewish cooperatives of the 1920s to remain cooperative today. Kazan was not just willing to play ball with capitalism, but proved to be particularly adroit at it by successfully negotiating with figures like the immensely powerful city planner robert moses he went on to build more than 25,000 units of worker housing through the creation of complexes like penn south and manhattan's chelsea neighborhood and co-op city working from the model he established labor unions built two dozen cooperative housing complexes in new york city these co-ops provided democratically governed affordable housing for workers and maintained an impressive array of cooperative services from child care centers to sports teams to credit unions. I want to point out, so like, so you have an image in your head. These are all of those Tower in the Park projects in New York. So it's both like a partnership with, you know, the devil, Robert Moses, hella racist, and that kind of influences the rest. So keep going, Michael. This measure of autonomy for some workers came at a cost for others. Unions typically acquired land by bulldozing slums, which meant building homes for unionized workers through the displacement of more marginalized, usually non-white, non-union workers. Despite the Rosh, uh, Rochdale principles, despite the Rochdale's commitment to more to open membership, many were segregated and remained so informally even after the passage of laws against housing discrimination. In the 1970s, a group of Hispanic and black house seekers sued Co-op or Coop Village, a string of union-owned complexes Kazan built on the Lower East Side, for housing discrimination. At the time, the complex was at least 90% Jewish. The parties reached a settlement agreement and a judge later ordered Co-op Village to pay plaintiffs' legal fees. 
everybody knows the word co-op synonym for Jewish housing. The influential Puerto Rican bronze political operator Herman Bedillo said in 1988, Puerto Ricans and Hispanics don't understand co-ops and don't have the money for co-ops, and neither do blacks. For all its crass racialization, Badillo's comment registered a real concern that New York's cooperative housing had become a form of government subsidy via low-interest loans for the white middle class. And thus kind of New York Jews became white. Um, yeah. And that's, this is, that's also when my grandmother became a Democrat. Because her and her sister were communists um, as well. Uh, as she put it, really? uh, well, when when uh, when she as she put it, well, if you were for rights for Negroes, you were a communist. Yeah, no, yeah. The, this is my my father's side of the family. Their experience are definitely the Bronx Jews, and uh, some of them didn't, didn't leave the city. And Anne of well, my family now. is um, my family is more of the upstate Jews who there are no current or former communists in my Jewish family that I know of. If there are, I would love to meet them. Uh, another paragraph of this mentioned the Abraham Lincoln brigades because the, the co-op was a forward operating brace. They, uh, along with the, you know, kids programs, uh, the adults did all kinds of volunteer work. Uh, they even like knitted stuff for the uh, Soviet front in World War II and stuff. And, and they also supported the Abraham Lincoln brigades they collected cigarettes for him and stuff. Hmm. And uh, and I have a family member, like a third cousin or something, who um, was a member of that. But he didn't tell anybody until uh, after the fact, because he died. Martyr. Speaking of martyrdom against the Spanish fascists, the rest of the hour we'll be devoting to an article by Organizing Work. This is, I don't, not sure if, it's replacing the newspaper of the IWW. The IWW has always had a newspaper, but I guess for a digital newspaper, they have started a they've started a Patreon, which I contribute to actually, called Organizing Work. So this is their like uh, labor reporting by the Wobblies, and they also have the Wobcast. So yeah, you, know, you can check that out as well if you're interested. And the IWW is the radical. Um, decentralized, anyone can join labor union, the anarchist sensibility, which is uh, over a century old now. So this is written by Carmen Morali, Lexi Owens, and Robert Fontana. They argue that worker co-ops are not the institutions for fighting capitalism that many on the left take them to be. This is more critical, but it's more of a, I'm only reading this as an argument that it's, it's not, it is, Co-ops are part of leftist strategy, but it's about what is the goal of them. Is it simply to be able to build the economic base for which to do worker struggle? They're just mostly arguing for the fact that it isn't worker struggle in and of itself, as we just covered with the Jewish ones in New York City. That once you start working with the big capitalist and racist institutions uh, fully, you you take them on. You take on their values, not the other way around. So the article is called "You Can't Win Without a Fight: Why Worker Cooperatives Are Roughly a Bad Strategy." I'm going to insert my own words to soften their rhetoric because um, they're pretty hard, going hard. 
And, and, and so, like, we started with Richard Wolf. We're going to roughly end with a critique of Richard Wolf. Uh, in a recent episode of his podcast, Democracy at Work, Marxist economist Richard Wolf argued that worker co-ops and unions should be working together to create better working conditions and prospects for worker liberation. Wolf contended that whereas labor unions bargain a better deal for workers from the employer, worker co-ops are the end goal because they are the way in which workers don't have to bargain with anybody else. Worker co-ops have long been popular in left-leaning circles. VSA's Libertarian Socialist Caucus platform in 2018 states, worker control over workplaces can only be advanced for the creation support of worker-owned firms, in conjunction with unions and community councils. So this is a very definitive statement right there, which the IWW doesn't agree with. Workers collectively owning and operating a business removes the oppression and discipline imposed by the employer and puts the profits directly in the workers' hands, or so the argument goes. But we argue that worker co-ops are often an off-ramp from organizing against the boss and that even a mass cooperative movement can never pose a legitimate challenge to the employing class because they are coming from a class warfare perspective here. Mostly saying that, like, the shift to the co-op economy isn't, is it's not class struggle, right? It's that's the main charge is like we need class struggle. That's what we need, and this isn't that. That's the critique. Not that any of the other things that co-ops do don't happen, because we covered all of that good stuff. Particular bedfellows. One of the success stories often pointed to by proponents of co-ops is Mondragon, based in the Basque County in northeastern Spain. Mondragon is one of the largest worker co-ops in the world, with over eighty thousand members. As of 2019, 2009, Mondragon entered into an agreement with the United Steelworkers to found worker co-ops in the U.S. Great. Mondragon was first set up in the late 1950s as a small operation manufacturing paraffin heaters. Today, it has 257 separate companies in several countries. Spain in the 50s was still under the grip of General Franco, the fascist dictator installed by the European ruling class in Nazi Germany after the failed Spanish Revolution in 36. Franco and his secret police were notoriously brutal anti-communists. Labor organizers were regularly arrested, tortured, and murdered, particularly the radical CNT, leading to a near-complete collapse in class struggle organizing. He was intolerant of anything that might pose a threat like the 36 Revolution had. And yet, it was during the Frankist period that Mondragon was founded and grew to a rather large size. Franco's regime actually supported Mondragon's development, more than happy to let a group of workers develop light industry in an underdeveloped region of Spain. In 1965, amidst an upswell of labor and student unrest, Franco's Minister of Labor traveled to the Basque Country to award a gold medal for merit and work to the founder and then director of Mondragon, Jose Amaretera. Decades later, in 2013, Mondragon was awarded for boldness in business by the Financial Times, joining Amazon, Apple, and Fiat. How is it that Marxist economists, leftist revolutionaries, unions, financial newspapers, and the longest-reigning fascists in the 20th century can all support the same thing? Now, inside that, like, what's really kind of being kind of larger issue at work here is... Like when when we do things on our own, when the market fails us, we take matters into our own hands, right? And support ourselves or we develop our alternative institutions 
to survive, right, to meet our needs. And in some ways, the status quo applauds this. Like this, this is like this is good for them, right? They don't have to worry about the poor dying now. It's it's actually off their conscience because they self-organized. And with the IWW and other such like the militant socialists will always kind of point out is like true justice is when we actually do fight them, fight the ruling class, fight the capitalists, the banks, whatever, not just go our own way, even though going our own way seems like the most sensible. And since so many of us millennials are conflict averse option, but cause there's, there's real risk to ourselves and others and others we love when we would do class struggle, right? I mean, we, we, and it's also the thing that Americans like are, are so adverse to, like we see roughly the results of class struggle. It's bloody It results in all these disruptions that are even more disruptive than a global pandemic that kills half a million to a million people in America. You know, yeah. we, we could cause an event that kills 10 million people. And then we'll be the true monsters because we had to push for class struggle instead of just surviving and letting the rich, the billionaires just be. But like, we're not free until that social dynamic is removed or ended. That's, that's the argument being put forward here as we go forward through it. So class struggle or surrender. The idea of worker co-ops is seductive to workers and radicals because we all believe on some level that our jobs would be better if we ran things ourselves. Duh. What is a cooperative if not having some control over our work and over the means of production? Isn't building up worker ownership of capital a way of slowly building up socialism? That's the main contention of the co-op strategy. The problem with this is that cooperatives don't and can't organize the working class to fight, operative word, the ruling class for wealth and power. Instead, they seek to build and develop a tiny slice of capital outside of the direct control of the ruling class. In other words, uh, the elites. Cooperatives retreat from the direct struggle between workers and owners to instead build worker owners. This is precisely what made Mondragon palatable to General Franco. If anything, the development of Mondragon is a case study in the collapse and retreat of class struggle unionism. In fact, the founders of Mondragon started the co-op after a failed attempt to improve working conditions at their previous employer. So it's a pattern that they're going to focus on. Instead of organizing the workers to fight and win, they became worker owners or petty capitalists. But here's my problem with the rhetoric in this article is that like kind of anyone who starts a cooperative is just some kind of uh, loser who's giving up. It's like, well, it's kind of they're doing that after we tried class struggle and it failed. So we're doing this instead. It's the second option. And there's plenty of leftists like Richard Wolff who, and anyone else that follows the strategy, they advocate that it be step one because the class struggle step kind of doesn't, hasn't worked again and again over the centuries. Um, right. That's the, that's the unsaid argument for it, that, that like, look, class struggle is probably actually like, it makes more se- It's more lo- sound logic, but we've done it a lot and we keep losing. We keep losing right. these union drives. We keep losing these um, these strikes, and just like you know, and you have these IDW types that are just like, "What a bunch of losers!" Now, 
um, with their with their narrative here. This is a more common story than one might think. There are many recent examples of organizing campaigns devolving, devolving, we are Devo, into crowdfunding campaigns to found worker cooperatives after a union drive collapses, especially in low capital industries like food service and retail, where a lot of us are work now. Take the United Electrical Workers campaign at Augie's, a small cafe chain in Southern California, SoCal. In July of last year, the employer swiftly shuttered all five locations and laid off all workers under the nascent union went public. And this is, a, this is like an example of the capitalists remove the means of production, right? They don't remove themselves like John Galt, okay? They also have to remove the means of production because that's what makes them valuable or worth something. So they remove the means of production, meaning like the locations, the, the buildings. The union then pivoted to a public shaming and social media campaign attacking the employer. This was quickly followed by a GoFundMe page to help replace wages and raise startup capital for what would become the Slow Bloom Coffee Cooperative. Former workers at the House of Kaaba in Brooklyn pursued a similar strategy. After workers were fired, fired in the course of their organizing campaign, they started a cooperative pop-up kava bar before combining with other veterans of barista organizing campaigns to try to fundraise for a permanent cafe. And you could also see this as like a type of um, workers getting the skills to manage a coffee, a shop, and then mm-hmm. and taking those skills and, and then doing it their own way. Um, right. So it's like you're taking something from the owners, you know, <laughs> from the, the yeah, yeah. from the boss. Another example, again, from the EU, a UE, is a print and copy shop called Collective Copy in Amherst, Massachusetts. A union drive and strike in the mid-80s led to the employer closing the shop. The workers then solicited loans from allies in the community for startup capital for a six-member co-op. This also reminds me of the story used by uh, Michael Moore in his probably uh, probably capitalism a love story where the uh, third half of the movie is him advocating for co-op strategy. In each of these cases, instead of workers going on to organize at other employers in the industry, they now operate a small business. Which kind of reminds me of like the right wing or libertarian and on- online, you know, slapdown of like, if you want socialism, you'll get Venezuela. Start a small business instead. And that's kind of why they kind of like, this is giving up. This is becoming a petty bourgeois. Uh, the Lusty Lady campaign is often championed as an example of sex worker organizing. The workers at the San Francisco Strip Club initially formed a union with CEIU 790 in the late 90s. <laughs> After a strike in 03, the owner shut the location down. Workers then formed a co-op and continued operating. However, they soon started competing against each other for customers trying to drop heavier and non-white dancers from the shop because they brought in fewer customers and less money. Ouch. Mm. The same issues they originally organized the union to tackle in the first place. The Lusty Lady closed in 2013 after a failed community fundraising drive to pay rent and debt. With all of these examples, the pivot to a cooperative business happened after a decisive blow was dealt to the workers' union by the employer. But this pattern of workers turning to operating as a cooperative represents a big missed opportunity for labor organizations. It effectively takes agitated and experienced worker organizers and removes them from class struggle. 
If each worker who got fired from a job for organizing were instead to go on to organize at another workplace, especially supported by union membership, they could do much more to shift an industry, if even on a local level, than they could by simply grinding out a living in a small business. Now, this is this speaks to IWW strategy, which is we train ourselves in militant organizing. We join workplaces, not really based on interest, but just like uh, based on how many people can we reach there and organize them. Infiltrate, you know, very, very nefarious, very. Fighting on the opponent's turf. The dream of worker co-ops hinges on the idea that they can survive and compete with for-profit business businesses owned by individuals or investors, which they do. Worker cooperatives control production in an immediate sense, but they're subject to the same market discipline as capitalist enterprises. Most cooperatives exist in the service industry, relatively low capital sector. It doesn't take a lot of money and machinery to get business up and running. But even then, it is difficult to survive, even with investors, small business loans, and a reliable market niche. Many who seek to form co-ops don't have the capital necessary to run a business or a loss for multiple years, because usually you have to operate at a loss for the first three years of a business. You might not have to if there's no or low rent or something like that. We might ask whether there will ever be a worker cooperative that can accrue enough capital to compete with something like Boeing in the commercial airline market. But regardless, it would face the same reality that though mark through market discipline and pressure from their competitors, businesses under capitalism have to squeeze their worker owners for increased productivity. This means downward wage pressure, unpaid overtime, and most other features of wage labor. Workers at Mondragon have struck the company multiple times in the past decades. One-third of the Mondragon workers, primarily its non-Spanish workforce, are outright employees, not member owners. At the core of it, the cooperative vision is to build something that will somehow eventually outcompete capitalist firms. But capitalism functions by leveraging worker exploitation. Co-ops have to survive in the same ecosystem. They may gain moral ground on capitalists by being less hierarchical, more fair, more equitable uh, in their structure, but they actually give up polit political ground okay, by avoiding the broader fight over resources that are allocated mm. in our society. And last, the bigger base, or a bigger base. So here, here's like, okay, what does the IWW do? Workers' greatest power is the power to halt, slow, and otherwise affect production to extract concessions. Uh, militant organizing. A cooperative's economic incentives discourage industrial action because the workers have an ownership stake in the business. But organized workers can bring a workplace to a grinding halt to win demands if they are big enough. But I, I kind of argue, but I would argue like, well, isn't the point of radical organizing then to remove the boss, right? Wouldn't that be making right. the it's not you're you're fighting the boss for the sake of fighting the boss. You're not fighting the boss to remove the boss. You're getting concessions. You're getting perks. That's what old unions did, and that was also kind of declined over the century. So, yeah. After thirty-five years, uh, sixty-five years of development, the Mondragon Corp Cooperative is slightly below. The 100,000 member rank. It remains a minor player everywhere outside of southwestern France and northeastern Spain, and most worker cooperatives never reach a fraction of the size of Mondragon. 
20 years before its founding, the two unions which led the Spanish Revolution, CAT, the FAI, and the UGT, had one and a half million members respectively. Right? So it's like if you really want to go big to replace capitalism, the IWW points to that the militant union kind of has a better track record for like being a mass base. Uh, even better than political parties, the political parties can also be very large too. These and other unions repeatedly carried out general strikes to improve working conditions and win political demands, such as the abolition of the monarchy. During the revolution, workers collectivized private property in mass. But of course, as mentioned earlier, with, because Mondragon was founded after the CNTFAA failed, despite they had a million and a half. Now, with a million and a half people, they were able to wage a civil war. That's the fight of all fights, right? And if there's anything right. that most Americans are afraid of, it's civil war. So much so that I was reading this article about, like, the shadow campaign in the uh, month and a half before the uh, election last year, that all of this money from corporations and big labor, they all made an implicit deal to shore up the election and ensure that it was not disputed. And that's why Trump's, you know, pseudo campaign after the election to overturn the results went so flat. Cooperatives are seen as a kind of prefigurative experiment in running a socialist economy. But in a very real sense, businesses are already run cooperatively by workers every day. Every construction crew, kitchen shift, and long-term care unit works in a coordinated way. Okay, I don't really like that rhetoric because it's like, well, yeah, things like workers cooperate in their teams, but then they're managed by managers. And sometimes their cooperation is very much limited. So you got you to gotta remove the boss or, or replace or whatever, or have a manager that's elected. So there's things missing from this rhetoric, of course, uh, but at, at, at important points. In a very real sense, businesses are already run cooperatively on products or people or imports, inputs that are produced or prepared by another team of workers elsewhere, and another team of workers takes over once they're done. We already know how to run the economy because we do it every day. What we need to learn is how to fight against employers to run it for us and not for them. So that that that's the thing with like IWW militant organizing, like that there doesn't seem to be rhetoric about replacing bosses because like if like it's like it's about keeping capitalist management, but doing it for the sake of the workers, which is where you kind of get into even though they're kind of anarchist tendency, they kind of get into the whole like worker state kind of thing where it's like, look, the point is not to abolish the state and its monopoly violence. It's about uh the state is simply a tool for whatever class is wielding it. So instead of being for a capitalist class, it needs to be for the working class. But this does not remove the issues of, of social dynamics and social relations, right? right? Um, so it's not very Marxist of them to say that stuff like that or take that kind of line. Anyway, unions are working class organizations that introduce a completely different logic than the market's logic of profit maximization. And they do so through power. The power struggle at the core of capitalism cannot be sidestepped by making the role of worker and owner coincide in a particular business. And, and, and to sidestep again about you had very powerful unions in the car industry, right? And they kind of, let's say they, 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 they did exert their power to make sure that the managers of Chrysler and GM 
ran things for, you know, in, in a less profit motivated way, right? But as soon as they became profit motivated, they closed plants. The unions were powerless to stop these things, uh, or if anything, they maybe accelerated it to some extent. But again, it didn't stop GM and Chrysler from acting as capitalist as possible, even though they were really powerful when exerting and negotiating their contracts. There's probably more to it than that. There is. but So uh, the power struggle at the core of capitalism cannot be sidestepped by making the role of worker and owner coincide in a particular business inside of an economy that is still run for the sake of generating profits. The divide between worker of productive capital and someone with no choice but to work for a wage is a broader social antagonism that has to be fought head on. The way I see it, there's a lot of things to agree with. I think it's more of a question of what your goals are with your strategies, not like which strategy is the right one, but what are the right goals, and then you pick your strategies. Well, it's sort of the argument that uh, professional uh, organizers who work hard to organize a workplace shouldn't then just be a worker in a co-op and then uh, stop the fight. I think that's sort of a false dichotomy that we can work to create cooperatives and abolish bosses and the organizers who help get there can then say, cool, I'm going to go do it again with a different business. Like they don't have to join the cooperative. So it's like a fusion of co-op strategy and IWW infiltration tactics. Tactics. Those are tactics, not strategy. I feel like, we don't have to, like, I feel like on the left, there is such a feeling that you have to only pick one strategy and that's it. That's your one fight. And, like, I guess sort of for every individual, it makes sense to, like, stick to a single battle. It's division but of labor. Goes, yeah. But then it goes to the point where a lot of people are like, great well my strategy is the best strategy and everyone else who isn't doing the same strategy is wrong for not doing my strategy when my feeling is that all of our fights are important fights in the battle against capitalism that capitalism is a multifaceted uh, enemy that has to be fought in a variety of different ways at the same time and that too many people get wrapped up in their one specific fight that they lose the big picture of the big, bigger battle that's happening, and they think that their one specific fight is the vanguard fight of the whole revolution, when the revolution is a war with many different battles and fronts. Even the last revolutions were, um, the succeeding ones, were like these like morasses of ecosystem of stuff. Yeah, true. So we've, we've hit the end of our hours. Um, thank you for joining us as the Three Left Show. I'm Dan Platt with... Uh, Michael Walsh, hello, thank you. 